Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, March the 28th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Well, welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast, and we're down to the wire, less than a week before opening day, and, you know, I know everybody's getting excited about the season starting. I certainly am tired of spring training, to tell you the truth. I gotta be be straight with you guys. Uh, I think we know where the positional battles are going. I know there's a couple of things left with the bullpen, and I think the bullpen, and if you go back to my original Talking Mets podcast on the roster a couple of weeks back. I was pretty on spot on. I think Jacob Barnes is going to make me look a little bad this season, which I'll be more than happy to do a make culpa on that. But uh, today, what I'm doing, before we get into a season preview and really dive into this whole thing, um, I wanted to do another one of these conversational type of podcasts. It went so well the last time with Mark Gold that I wanted to try something different. Now, this is a little different because not only do I have a lifelong Mets fan joining me today for a long conversation, and that's what I'll call this. This is a conversation. There's interviews, then there's conversations, and what I like to do on this show is do more conversations because I think that that's the entertainment value, and that's what uh, makes it popular, and that's what makes you guys wanting to come back for more and really enjoy and get something out of it. But Devin Gordon is a lifelong Mets fan. Uh, he just wrote a book. Uh, so Many Ways to Lose. That's a book that's out, uh, you know, HarperCollins. It's called uh, So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the Best Worst Team in Sports. It just came out. And I got to be honest, when I first started reading, and, and Devin has done a couple of articles for Sports Illustrated, I think GQ, highlighting some of the things that you'll find out in the book. And there's some interesting stories. There are things that you're going to learn. He dives deeper into the Bobby Bonilla payment. Uh, he talks about Bartolo Colon's home run, which, you know, why wouldn't we want to remember that? And gets into some other things about the Mets and, you know, situations, errors that maybe didn't go quite the way that we thought. But when I first saw it, I said, here's a guy, and who I didn't know he was a Mets fan when I first read it. 
here's a guy that's using the old laugh out loud Mets to make some money to make a name for themselves and it does perpetuate you know embracing all of this and I think at times and I've said this said this a long time ago you know amazing and believe is a cool thing but those are not sustainable winning principles those are hopes and hope is not a way to run an organization you know you want you know sustainable infrastructure that's really what you want which is funny because that's really what the Mets fans want and that's what maybe they're going to get as time goes on with their new owner but as I got to talk to Devin and read up and and really dive into it not only is he a great guy and a big time Mets fan but I think what he's trying to do with this book is take Mets history take everything and in an era where whether it's rule changes the history of our country anything where we try not you know we want to erase and forget what goes on and only focus on what we want things to be no matter how bad things are it's important to embrace our past and learn from it and not say that it's all good not excuse it not you know, try to make, uh, you know, things up that aren't real, not rewrite it, but really embrace it, look at it, and then move forward. And I think when I really thought about it, I said, what Devin's trying to do here is say, hey, yeah, this stinks. This was ridiculous. How many teams can not only fire a GM, but a manager before their first game in back-to-back years? I mean, think about how absurd that is, how if you put money down in Vegas, how unlikely that would be. So, in all of this, I think his love for the Mets comes out. I think there's going to be self-deprecating times where you read it and, you know, you look at things that, like I did and say, well, you know, the 2000 Mets weren't that bad, right? That lineup wasn't that bad. But I understand where he's going. And I think when you listen, as I had a chance to catch up with him earlier this week, and we have this conversation, two guys that are in the media, uh, two guys that have grown up Mets fans, have a passion for the team. And I think that that's important. And that's what I've always wanted to bring to this show. You know, this is not a fanboy show. I know that there's probably some people out there that will say that, members of the mainstream media. Um, And I don't want it to be that. I want this to be something where the topic of conversation, you learn something, we debate. But the fact that I'm so ingrained in this for the 40-somewhat years of my life, and that passion that's underlying, I think wants, you know, makes the product better. And I think that's what Devin's trying to do here. So this is a situation where you judge a book by the cover, literally, and then you go and you do a little more research, you read it, and you talk to the guy, and it's a, a different take, and And I'm glad I had a chance to meet Devin. Uh, you can check out Devin on Twitter, at DevinGordonX, and uh, I think you're going to enjoy this conversation, and it's a long one, and it's going to be pretty much the entire show. So yeah, I'm taking a quick break from spring training uh, I think that, you know, we'll be you know, on the way out. I'll give you kind of an update on the show schedule and the plan. But sit back. Devin Gordon, author of the book, So Many Ways to Lose, the amazing true story of the best worst team in sports. We're going to talk about the Mets over their history, the heartbreak, some of the hot lowlights, where we were, what we were thinking, and maybe a what if here or there. Who knows? So anyway, let's take a quick break. When I come back, Devin Gordon, author of the book, So Many Ways to Lose. We'll be back with that and more right after this. Hey, Mets fans. Opening day's right around the corner. I don't want you to forget about our sponsor, Manscaped. If you haven't tried it yet, go to manscaped.com. They are the global leader in grooming. Below the waist grooming, but in grooming. Uh, over 2 million men worldwide have joined this movement. I've told everybody, Mets fans, Talking Mets podcast Mets fans, you guys want to be part of it. If you want to be part of it, go to manscaped.com, check it out. You get 20% off and free shipping with the code TALKINGMETS. No G. Very important, no G. You got the Perfect Package 3.0. Comes with one of the first-in-class grooming tools you'll ever have. You've got some great colognes. You've also got a nice travel kit. Just go check it out. Manscaped.com, 20% off, free shipping. Code TALKINGMETS, no G, courtesy of me. I want to see you well-groomed for the 2021 baseball season. And if you're not interested, just pass by this and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, manscaped.com, 20% off free shipping, code Talking Mets, and let's get back to Mets baseball.
We're back and joining me, Devin Gordon, author of the book, So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, the best, worst team in sports. New book that just came out. You can check out Devin on Twitter at Devin Gordon X. He also has his own website. He wrote a nice piece a couple of years back about Gary, Keith, and Ron. DevinGordon.net, right, Devin? So That's uh, it. Yeah. welcome to the program. And look, uh, there's the boys of summer for the Dodgers. The Yankees have all these iconic books about how great they are and the stuffiness. I I think you try to uh, put Mets fandom in kind of its own little uh, boys of summer, I guess, type of uh, book, maybe right there, like version and encapsulate what it is to be a Mets fan in as much of a fun way as possible with some of the tough moments this franchise has had. I mean, we're special, right? Yeah. Special. There's no (laughs) one like us. We have this uncanny ability to go in with unbridled optimism and this equal certainty that something terrible is about to happen, right? That's where we are right now, right? Sure. All this, we've got the team, we're feeling good, the things that are happening on the field, cookie aside, okay, a little chaos behind the scenes as usual, but on the field, feeling good. And I don't know about you, but I'm just worried about what we're going to do to Francisco Lindor this year. What, what are we going to do to this poor man? So that's a very unique thing, right? We have a unique thing as Mets fans. Yankee fans have a unique thing. They're jerks, right? They're the ultimate jerks as fans. We have a unique thing, which is that we're delightful. And I just, but we also lose and we lose in a spectacular way and in creative ways. And I just thought that that made us worth telling as a fan base. We had a story that no one was really telling. Ron Darling used the comparison, I think, in one of the reviews as like Sisyphus, the old mythology, getting the rock to the top of the hill. I like to say, you know, they they say Mets fans are a blue collar fan base, but I think the Mets encompass kind of like life. Like, let's face it, very few people live a charm life where everything goes right. And the Mets, yeah, they've had, and you outlined it in this book, so many of these crazy events. I mean, how many teams could fire a general manager and a manager back to back seasons? Ever. Ever. I was talking to somebody like that to me is probably the synopsis of this, but this is without a meta, you know, sport without a game without a single game for either of we them. We have put money down in Vegas on that. Cause that's the only thing, you know, you and I wouldn't be doing this. We'd be off in the Bahamas right now. So yeah. um, sports is a metaphor for life, but I really think the, the struggle and the constant ebbs and flows and the small wins that you take in, I wonder if you thought about that as you're writing the book, because there is a lot to be taken away. You know, the Mets are kind of a metaphor for the everyday fan, you know, the struggles we go through. Yes. Life isn't perfect for us. We have wins, but we have we losses do. We do. and things and, like that. And that's an important thing that you just hit on with the Mets, which is, you know, sometimes we have this rep for being a bad team or, you know, these eternal losers. And as Mets fans, no, that's actually, that's not us. You got it. You got it. You got it wrong. We, we, we win a peculiar amount for a team with the reputation for being awful that we have. We've got, we've been to the World Series more recent than those jerks across town in the Bronx. And what we, what we do is we raise ourselves up to these giant heights to give ourselves something to plummet off of. And, and that's kind of like life, right? You have these highs, you have these lows. And very often those highest highs are made all the more pleasurable by the fact that they sort of smack you with a two by four. You don't see them coming. You never would have guessed that they'd happen in this way. But the downside is that it happens in the other direction too, right? And like you said, that's, that's life. The way the expectations that say Yankee fans have about how baseball should go there's no life logic to that. That's, that's not how any of us just winning, winning, winning year in and year out. Also, that just sounds boring. Like what? It's you would, like a miserable way to live. With- but you would, you would have liked to sort of, like, and I say this a lot of times, it would have been nice if we were sitting here talking, well, the Mets have had all these losses, but check out that dynasty in the eighties, 86, 88, 87, maybe a three peat, you know, and that's where I guess the Yankee fan argument will be is, yeah, you, you embrace this history, and that's important to embrace the history, but it would have been nice to have a little bit more winning in between. Have, have a little bit. Like one dynasty, like one actual right. dynasty rather than the sort of the almost dynasty. I mean, what's more messy than the dynasty we had in the late 80s where it's like we dominated, but we also were kind of simultaneously imploding? I mean, as you probably know, look, if we were under the, if we were under the playoff rules that we have now, the Mets would have been in the playoffs five times in six years, I think, or maybe all six years in the late 80s. Pretty much, yep. So we, you know, 
that's a bummer of history. That team now could easily have won three rings by performing exactly the same way they did. Just maybe they roll into the wild, you know, they roll in as a wild card and steamroll everybody. In that moment, they won one World Series, one other division, and then that was it. And that's kind of a bummer for us as Mets fans. That's what our dynasty is. But I guess I get that argument. Is Maybe this is what we're going into. Maybe this is the Steve Cohen era. Maybe this is our dynasty moment. Well, it's interesting because, and I know what you're talking about, you know, and I was thinking of this when I, when the concept of the book came out, go to any Mets game, big game, playoff, or even like a regular season game. I remember it was, you know, a couple of years ago, my brother called me, he was at a game. He said, you have no idea. As soon as that, lead went from 8-2 to 8-4 to 8-5 the stadium got tense yeah and I really believe in energy you know there's and I think people are seeing this now with the no fans in the stands there's a difference there's certainly yeah. different to the NBA the NHL but even baseball I think the Mets that 2019 team fed off the fans but there's always been this uh tension if you've been to any Mets playoff game or any big game or any moment where the tension is like cut with a knife yeah, And you feel it. And I think it goes in and it puts maybe a, a weight on the players. This is a tough place. Steve Phillips has said it on Sirius XM. This is a tough job because you have all the expectations of the Yankees, none of the history, in the past, none of the money, and you get the same scorn. You get no breaks. And they're in the media, look, let's face it, this whole narrative, I'm sure you're getting a lot of requests for interviews. They eat it up. But a Mets fan at some point, this gets tiresome. They don't want to, sure. you know, it's great for your project and your book, but let's face it. I'm sure that at times, you, you know, during the history, as you remember these stories, you're like, it, it's not so fun for the, the fans that are on the other side. Oh, of no, it's, it's often agonizing. You know, this, this process, this book is an act of catharsis, right? This is, you know, what is the old phrase? Tr- you know, comedy equals tragedy plus time. Sure. This, this took a long time for me to process this way. There's, you know, there's a chapter in the book entirely about the Andy Chavez catch, um, which is my favorite moment in Mets history. It was the best moment I was physically present for at Shea Stadium. I don't remember what happened next. You'd have to read the book to find out. You know, like it was, <laughs> but like, you know, the I haven't watched the Beltron at bat. I haven't, I've never seen the video of it. I was there wow. and I won't wow. watch it. Not even for wow. this book. I didn't watch it. Well, I'm going to give you some feedback. Yeah. It's a hard at bat to watch because I've watched it and I've rerun and I rerun that at bat. It's funny you bring that up because I remember watching it a couple of years ago. And I remember that first pitch. I'll tell you how that at bat. I'll give you a little precursor. That at bat was lost on the first pitch. A fa- guy was on the hook, fast pull down the middle. And you, and I remember watching it live. And the funny thing is I watch it on the, on the second round of it. And I'm like, that's where the at-bat was lost over there. But it's funny because you still feel the same emotions. You still feel that, you know, when you talk about disappointment, the Terry Pendleton home run, you're hoping that that ball stays in the ballpark. Yes. Mike Sosha, the home run in 88, you're hoping that that doesn't happen. What do you have, 30, uh, 36 lifetime home runs? Yeah, and then one of the biggest thing off a of dock, and it's funny because I interviewed the late Gary Cotter, may God rest his soul, and I asked him when he was with the Long Island Ducks, I said, should Davey have brought in Myers? And he looked at me and said, no comment. So that's all it tells you. And that's true. I have it on the tape somewhere. So, yeah, um, so I mean, we could we could probably do 30 minutes but, just on that. But it's interesting. In that, in that, right, yeah. As you're doing this book, are you remembering some of these moments, like what I just talked about, and you're like... And is it bringing that that rush of of uh, disappointment back and pain sure, and hurt and things sure. like that? I mean, you know, one of the things it's funny that you bring it up because, of course, I you know I worry that Mets fans are going to have like me are going to recoil, have this sort of hey, you know, easy on our team, right? But we also have the other half of us where we're sort of we we have this built in Casey Stengel sense of humor about ourselves that's just kind of carried through the generations, right? And so. I did worry that we would have, you know, people might have that res- response. And my, my, my hope was that by knowing that I'm a lifelong Mets fan myself and that it's written from that perspective, that people might interpret it as, oh, well, this is somebody who's processing grief through sure. history and hopefully through humor so that we can look back on the things that we went through and laugh at them. But not all of them are funny stories, you know, like, you know, the way Cleon Jones was treated by the Mets in the 1970s is, is not a right. funny story. You know, the, the, what happened to Mackie Sasser 
It's not a funny story, right. but, it, but it's very much, you know, stories like Cleon and stories like Mackie Sasser, which are tougher, certainly not funny stories about the Mets, but they're part of our history. And, you know, looking at our team through this filter of hope and frustration is, 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 is an interesting prism. It's, 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 it's a different way, I think, to look at sports. But ultimately, it's actually how most of us end up experiencing sports. Like so many sports books wind up being written about the triumphant moments, the run to the title. Most Mets books tend to be about 86 and 69. But those, those right. are the exceptions to the rule for us, right? Sure. The Mets, most of the Mets are the in-between, right? Like I look at 2019, which is such a weird year. I think we finished third. I think the record was like 83 and 79. I had a blast that season. Yeah, that it was, was fun. Fun second half. Yeah. That was really, really fun. And like, I can't imagine any Yankee fan ever describing a third place '83 and '79 season as anything other than an utter disaster. Whereas you and I can look at that season and be like, "Wow, Pete Alonso." I'll tell you, one of the more fun. There's a couple of the fact. I think 2019 is a fun season. Um, and yeah, you have your 2015s and your 99s and your 2000s where you just come up short. But all you know, some of the seasons, and you may have you know a few of those, like 1997. Team was coming out of, yeah. you know, I remember 1997. I remember this vividly. Now this is in the middle of of the Knicks being like New York playoff team, you know, and all that stuff. And um, I remember I was in Miami uh, on spring break. I was still in college, and mm-hmm. they were doing a preview of the Mets coming into the season. Generation mm-hmm. K was hurt uh-huh. and a guy named Rick Reed was like one of their best pitchers. Nobody uh-huh. knew who he was and they had them pegged for a hundred losses. Yeah. And it was like, you know, you went through this five-year rebuild. These pitchers are hurt. All the optimism from the prior year, all gone. They have this guy, Bobby Valentine, that a lot of people don't like as the manager. And then the Knicks go out, they have that horrible loss to the heat. And, and now your summer oh, starts right. and, and, and you're like, you know, this is, I think, right around when Parcells was taking over a one in 15 Jets team. So there's a lot of negative stuff going on in New York. And here's this Mets team. You know, Yankees are a champion. You could not be further away from relevancy at that point. Yep. And here this team came out and competed and nearly made the playoffs and began this climb back. And then obviously Piazza comes in the next year and, and the rest is history. Um, but those are the kind of seasons you're right. You don't get those everywhere. I love would say that kind of to me. That's like epitome of being a fan 1997. Cause I remember that season and it was a hell of a lot of fun. I love those seasons. I mean, what you're, you know, the season before you really put it together and maybe make right. a big postseason run that where you're, where you can feel all that excitement. Wow. We got something here. Like for, you know, 84, which was the season that I basically started watching. I mean, I watched some baseball in 83 and I had no idea what I was watching, but in right. 84, that's when I started to learn what baseball was and understand it. And 84 for the Mets was one of those seasons. It was, oh, ooh, we got something here. This is getting sure. exciting. They weren't ready. They were still a young team. They were two years away, but one year away from being really good, right? Like that 85 Mets team could have won the World Series if they had gotten past the Cardinals. That was a really good team. But 84 was where they were on the cusp. And 2019 felt like a maybe an on the cusp year. We'll never know because 2020 was such a weird thing. But 97 was like that, right? I love those seasons. What's, what's funny about 2015 is I almost feel like we skipped past it in 2015, right? Yeah. Like, it was like a, straight uh, into the it's World like you, you woke up your friend and say, Hey, let's go on this road trip. And it was, what's funny is that everyone loves 2015 and 2016, but when you really boil the Terry Collins era, you had about 12 weeks between two seasons of relevant baseball. Yeah, yeah, basically. And, and I, I know people get mad at me because I wasn't the biggest Terry guy. I don't think he was a great in game manager. I know he was this folksy guy and he had the, the, you know, the whole thing with the Syndergaard and Utley, and they love that little video of him going off on the umpires. Uh, but that was truly a 12-week season. Yeah. You never would have expected that, a 12-week season. And in a lot of ways, I, I, I wonder, you know, I look at the Mets now, and I've used this comparison on the show before. Uh, I remember going to Boston and doing tours of Fenway Park, uh, 99, 98, 2000, and that was a pain fan base. Yeah. And look at what happened with one moment. Yeah. everything turned around and look at where they are now. Now it's the Fenway sports group and the ballpark is not just the experience. The Mets are kind of in that almost that 
that same way right now with a new owner. Yeah. They got money. They've got the good bones. Like the Red Sox of 2001 before Theo Epstein took on. Look at those rosters. They had some good bones. They needed that next step. They needed those extra guys. And that's where they got in 2003 and 2004. And then now I look at the Mets kind of that way. And things could change a lot. Like this book could be like uh, the ode to the old Mets. It's funny it came out this year. Because now you've got Steve Cohen, and it's not just about money, but is it about the mindset? Because this mindset sometimes, which you're pointing out, is a very true mindset, but it could be what's held the franchise back yes. in yeah. a lot of ways. Yes. Amazing and Believe is cool, but Amazing and Believe are not – I used to say Amazing and Believe are not sustainable infrastructure for a baseball team. That's not – That's sure. not. You know, and it sounds like a corporate boardroom, but let's face it. It's not sustain- – it's aggravating sometimes. Like, you know, it's got to be more than just hope and, and a prayer. It's going to be interesting to see what Cohen brings in, right? Because I do think that there's almost this test of what our day- DNA really is. Because, you know, the Wilpons were willing to spend money haphazardly off and on. Like, they'd spend money and then feel stupid for the money they spent, and then they wouldn't spend money. And then things would go to crap and then they'd be forced to spend money again. And it never seemed like there was any real logic behind it. Cohen definitely feels more like there's a purpose to the things that he does. And the guy is obviously a competent businessman and he runs things well. Now, does that mean that he can cure the messiness in our well, DNA? So far, the positive vibes are there, but there's a lot of weird stuff. I mean, Jared Porter... It's, uh trevor bauer side it's, it's still, still there but it got snuffed out but think about it, it got snuffed out pretty quick i think under the old regime that might have spiraled and and think about it look how historically significant what they're doing right now a new owner comes in on november 1st they have to hire alderson's the president comes back they have to hire a gm they have to do it in the middle of free agency there's no pre-planning this is truly like on the fly and let's face it, no one's given them a curve. This is not like school where like, you know what? I'll give you a break. You know, you took the team over on November 1st. The rest of the league doesn't care. The yeah. media doesn't care. The Mets fail and they don't make the playoffs. They will be treated the same as if Steve Cohen took over in August of last year and had 12 weeks to prepare for the offseason right. and build infrastructure. Nobody yeah. cares. That's the amazing part. And if they do win, and let's say they do put it together this year, I think it's historically significant. And it is part of that weirdness of being the Mets, this whole weird uh, storyline. And I think that's what's missing in sports today. The stories are gone. It's all numbers. And I think we could do more of that storytelling. That's why I got into this is storytelling, not because of bad again. Yeah, me me too. And and the other thing I would add to that is sometimes as, 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 as sports fans, we feel like we've been told the same story over and over and over again. And it's just repackaged and maybe it's different names. It's different emotions. I think too many sports journalists and sports storytellers, frankly, focus on winning and stories that end with winning a little too much because they think that people want that rousing goosebumps. But that, but it's a little artificial, right? It's a simulacrum of something that actually happened years and years earlier. And all you're really trying to do is conjure that thing over but it's not the real thing the storytelling is the thing and if you give people a really original story that they haven't heard before even if it doesn't necessarily have a happy ending the the, the journey that it can take you on like there's a chapter in my book about a stadium about a building but it's shea stadium right Shea stadium is an incredibly colorful building with an amazing story behind it and i don't think sports fans are used to thinking about a building as the subject of a great sports story And I'm hoping that that's what'll, you know, show them um, who the Mets are. And if you're a Mets fan, you'll identify with, oh yeah, Shea Stadium really is a part of who we are. That is the spirit of the Mets, that building. There's something perfectly Metsy about the entire history of Shea Stadium. And that's what makes us special, you know, (laughs) like I said, certainly back to us being special. The, you know, the Reds don't have this, the Diamondbacks don't have this. And I'm really proud of our team. You know, we, we have two rings in our history, but I, I think we're the most fun team to root for in baseball. So I'm okay with that. I couldn't uh, argue with that. The book is uh, So Many Ways to Lose, The Amazing True Story of the New York Mets, the best worst team in sports, Devin Gordon. Devin, you have so many stories, I'm sure, that you, you learned during this. So the, as we, we get to the back half of this, I'm curious, you came, became a fan around the time that I was, mid-80s, yeah. you know, around there. So there's this whole 25, 26 years of Mets history that you weren't around for. Now yeah. you heard stories, 
but let's face it, this there's not as much about those teams nuanced as there is. I mean, I can find a lot of stuff about the 2005 Mets now with the internet era. Yep. Uh, give me a story that maybe from that pre Devin Gordon fandom that you learned and you were like, I never knew that. It was something that really stood out to you. A story that, you know, really blew you away. And like, oh, wow, I can't believe that I'm a Mets fan. Did you learn anything like that right in this book? You know, for some reason, maybe it's because of my sense of storytelling and the fact that I'm always, my mind's always going to something that makes me laugh. Um, the dark years immediately after my birth and before I became a Mets fan, the late seventies, um, when the team was falling to pieces, the original family, the Paysons, um, were, were, um, uh, falling out of love with the team. Let's say her, Mrs. Payson's husband never particularly liked the Mets. He was a horse racing guy. And once she died, um, and the team went bad and they dealt away Tom Seaver, they started hemorrhaging money really badly. And one thing that they did, um, and I love this so much, I dedicated a whole chapter to it, um, is that for a brief year or a brief period uh, in the late 70s, they actually fired Mr. Met. They fired <laughs> Mr. Met. They fired Mr. Loving father and husband <laughs> and replaced him with a mule, a right. live actual mule that they <laughs> named Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, because they wanted a symbol of unglamorous grit and determination to be the symbol of the Mets. And so they literally made the symbol of the Mets a rented old break broken down mule. And they, <laughs> they ended up, it turned out, and this only occurred to them later, the demise of metal, the mule um, was brought on um, because it turns out that uh, mules need to be fed um, <laughs> and they require care and feeding and you right. have to store them in humane facilities. And all of these things cost money. Um, whereas you can pay Mr. Met nine to five. Right. Yeah. The mule doesn't, the mule can't go home to, a, to the house after the, the ball game's over. You got to take care of the mule at that point. If the point. mule takes a dump in center field, you can't fire <laughs> the mule. If right. Mr. Met does that, you can, you fire. can fire and bring someone. That's I funny. Just, I just thought that was, you know, just a, 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 a messy story. Um, and an amazing moment that I just couldn't believe happened um, in our history. And, you know, there, there are great moments um, like the imperfect game, you know, the Tom Seaver uh, near perfect game in the summer of 69. That was a game that I knew about by name. I, I'd heard of the imperfect game. I knew the story of it. I knew it was a big deal for the Mets in 1969. But when I started to do the research on it, I was like, oh, my God. Like if I could transport myself back to any Mets game before my birth, I wouldn't go to game five in 69. I'd go to this one. I'd go to this one because that's when the Mets franchise was born. That night when Seaver nearly threw a perfect game. That was when the Mets were like, oh my God, we're real. We're a team now. Yeah. And everyone was there Friday night at Shea. 58,000 people. Think about that now. Shea was right. a huge stadium. Real big ballpark. And it, and it was loud and, and it, it would shake loud. and it would shake. Yeah. I and always tell the story like, about you sit in the upper deck. And I remember this very vividly. Last row of the upper deck. Right. And, and Devin's on video and he's doing the bouncing up and down over here. But um, I remember game uh, three of the NLDS in 2000. Alfonso ties the game. Eighth inning off of Rob Nen with a base hit. I was up in that last row and I'm saying to myself, this place falls. I'm, at least I'll be on top of everybody to cushion me, but it's, it's, it's scary. It's, it's scary. It you have that thought because that's where I was sitting in 2006 in game seven when wow. I that catch. And I had the same exact thought. I think this deck might fall. This fall from the buzz. It's a great way to die. I really <laughs> you can see I the really catch. Played. There you go. I thought this is how I'm going out. That's right. Great. And you know what? I kind of wish I had given well, that was, that was a tough, well, you, I will give you advice. Maybe, maybe after this interview, you could go watch the Beltran at bat, at least watch it and go, you put, you put your hands over your eyes. Now you had a chance as part of the promotion for the book. You have a couple of publications. You wrote a piece in GQ. You wrote a piece in sports illustrated. Um, I'm going to, you know, the Bartolo Cologne home run. That's a great piece. I recommend everybody goes and checks that out. Sports illustrated did a nice job breaking down the history of the uh the broken bat and yes. piazza clemens i had forgotten 
I had forgotten about um, the broken back. I'll tell you what, Piazza's been on this program, and I sent them that article, and I said, hey, you remember talk Because you talked to him quite a while before on that. Whole it was thing, a right? lot. It was like almost two yeah, years. Yeah, he did. He did talk. He did remember that uh, that that particular. We're trying uh, to get the book, but we don't know where he is. I think he's back in Florida. I don't know where he is. We're trying to get it to him. Yeah, Jay Horowitz. That's how you get it to him. Yeah, <laughs> Jay, Horowitz. Jay Horowitz. Um, but you did a nice piece about Bobby Benia and Bobby Benia Day, and here's why Bobby Benia Day drives me crazy. Mm-hmm. Bobby Benia Day drives me crazy because the Mets are not the only team that though deferred payments. By the way, I think Bruce Souter is still on the Braves payroll. Yes. Brent Saberhagen might be on the Royals and the Mets payroll. Um, and Gene Garber, I'll throw names out. I've seen deferred payments. There's always, it's amazing how it's not that big private deal. information now is part of like payroll and what people make is part of public knowledge. Like it really shouldn't be, but it's yeah. amazing on that. So yeah. Bobby Benia is getting these crazy deferred payments. They happen to be the Mets, the team that stands out, maybe because it's Bobby Bo, maybe because it's so much money, maybe because it seems like it's in perpetuity. But you had a chance to talk to his old agent, Dennis Gilbert. Now, here's my takeaway. Dennis Gilbert lives in Malibu, not cheap, beautiful, <laughs> not cheap, too little close to nature. That's the whole thing between the hurricane, you know, the, the fires and, and Mother Nature with water having its own little, uh, you know, revenge. I'd love to have like a summer home there, but not my primary residence. But anyway... Um, so Dennis Gilbert's living in Malibu. So he's yeah. clearly benefiting from this yeah, check. Let me put it that he's way. Good. And he's in the insurance business. And I don't know about you, Devin insurance is a nice, uh, uh, you know, career. I don't know if it's Malibu good. So I think he's kind of doing pretty well on this Bobby Benia payments, but he actually talked about how this came about and it was a, it was not an easy negotiation. And, uh, it looks like the Mets thought, well, the Mets might've won that transaction more than people think based on the article that you wrote. Yeah, I mean, well, let me say this about Dennis Gilbert, who was a delight to speak with because we did it on Zoom. I can't remember if I put that part in the article because I had to edit it down. But in the book, okay. it's a little bit more detailed. My interaction with, with Dennis was a little bit more detailed. And we were doing it on FaceTime. And he was doing his sort of, you know, he's in his 70s. So he was doing his sort of daily exercise. And his daily exercise consisted of a walk around his Malibu property, around his Malibu <laughs> estate. And as far as I could tell, and we were on the phone for like an hour, he took one lap, one lap <laughs> around his estate. As far in as an hour. Know. In an hour. Yeah. And, you know, what? one of the things that he said to me was, you would think, you would think being an agent for major athletes would be far more lucrative than being in the insurance business for these athletes. You would be wrong. He wow. left being a sports agent for people like Bobby Benia because he was like, there's no money in this for me. <laughs> That's a lot, how a lot more. It might have been might have been about a decade to. Well, he probably was on the back end when he when he got out was right after Benia, right? They yeah. were starting to get big money. That's true. I mean, that's true. I mean, that's true. And I and I think, I mean, look, we talk about five million dollars in two thousand, still big money, but you know, not like what you see today with three hundred million. No, that's years, true. But, and maybe that's a different it. economics. I mean, he clearly. But but the money. aggravation level far less. Not people stealing your clients. Guys like you and that's I true. calling them up, all that stuff. But it, it, you know, it's interesting how that has become a thing. And I laugh when I read that. I'm like. The, the, the Wilpons thought they had all this money in Madoff. And you know what? I'll just take the money, defer it. I'll invest this $5 million. And that $30 million that they're paying out, Benia, uh, that'll be $90 million with Madoff. Who would have known? You know, too good to be true, exactly. right? Yeah. That yeah. whole thing. So, uh, but listen, that was uh, not a bad deal for Benia. I got to give the guy credit. His agent sat down and said, when you retire, the, the, the spigot turns off. And not everybody has the discipline to save. This is the ultimate savings account. I mean, he's getting paid more than middle relievers right now. Into and his he got another one from Baltimore. Oh, I didn't know. Wow, that's amazing. An, I think I had to cut that from the article. Cooper Space, he's got Smart. Baltimore. Like, look, this is, and I think one of the things that you're hinging on is like Dennis Gilbert himself is always like, what's the big deal? Like his, yeah. he, not, he did not invent this. No. It was unusual. It wasn't like, you know, it happened, but he didn't invent it. It was... Mm-hmm a tactic that some people had done and it became much more popularized, but it's, it's not like some ingenious con that they came up with. So he's always been a little mystified about it. And it is a good question. Like, what is it about it? And I think it's just that combination of our 
antipathy for Bobby Bo as a fan base, right. deserve it or not, we can, you know. And he's a good, and you know what? When you look at Bobby Bonilla, I was looking at his numbers the other day. I kind of got sparked by what you did. 2,000 hits, nearly 300 home runs, really every year, offensive guy, lousy, lousy attitude, uh, lousy defensive player, probably should have been in the American League as a DH. But by today's standards, um, he'd have a, he'd have a job because of his offense, and, even, and he played multiple he, positions. Third, multiple first, positions, even with the, the Mets, corners, his first year was a disaster. Ask Carlos yep. Beltran about that. That's not that's not a thing. New York isn't easy, and that's what Lindor. You know, I want to warn people. Beltran had a tough first year. Bonilla had a tough, and then his numbers after that were good. Yeah, the team was bad, but numbers were good. Uh, Piazza and I've talked to Mike on the show about this. Not easy his first couple of months on yep. the on the on the uh, uh, in New York, and then he had the big September. You know, mm-hmm. things could have gone very differently there. So, you know, look, it's it's not easy. And 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 Bonilla is a cautionary tale in that sense. You have, it takes time to adjust here. And so, you know, so he's, you know, underperforms, um, even though his numbers were pretty good after that year, the team was so not just bad, but dislikable, right? So there's that. And then there's, of course, on the opposite end of it, there's the Wilpons, right? And all of this kicks in in 2011, right? That's when the Benia payments start in 2011. And 2011 is one of the nadirs of our franchise, right? That's, you know, that's the year in which we're paying Benia at one point more than the starting outfield that the Mets sure. did, right? And so sure. I think there's that combination of like, this guy now? We're paying this guy now when we can't even... Right feel the team so i think it's that stew of negativity when even when in the moment if you're looking at the deal in the moment both sides won worked out great worked out right. great for us worked out great for him he's got his money we almost beat the Yankees. god bless the theories wonderful but we don't like win-win deals do we like in, no. in, 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 as sports fans we don't like the win-winness whereas i actually kind of find the win-win really interesting just because it's an unusual outcome and if you look closer at those moments, they're usually more fun stories to tell. Absolutely. And Bobby's gained a few pounds in his retirement. Go Google some pictures of recent interviews. He's gained a few pounds. He's eating well. He's but eating he's well. Also, you know what I think is interesting about him? He's still in baseball. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. This is a guy for whatever we think about. Players associates. we involved with the Players Association. Yeah. This is a guy who loves. Would he not talk to you? So Gilbert talked to you. I'm assuming Benia wouldn't talk to you, right? He doesn't Want talk nothing to do. Us. I mean, I no. think if I had showed up maybe – that was, I thought, you know, one of the things that I thought I might try to do was just try to show up somewhere he'd be. I mean, I reached out. I asked Dennis Gilbert if he thought he'd talk to me. He's like, he's not going to talk to you about that. It's yeah. one of the difficult things is I would have really liked to talk to Bobby about a lot of things, a right. lot of things, because I also think that his record in New York, when we look back at what we know about the media and race and the way that played into things, particularly in that era, I think we just, it doesn't mean we need to let Bobby Bow off the hook, but I do think we need to we look at it a little bit. Just it was a tough, it was a tough situation. And look, yeah. uh, a guy from Pittsburgh probably shouldn't have been in New York. Probably not. You know, let's put it this way. was expected to be strawberry. Not fair. He came not fair to be strawberry. brought in to be Daryl Strawberry. Yeah, that's just not fair. South Bronx, everybody he was not strawberry. Right. And he was not that guy. And he came in thinking that he was going to be welcomed with open arms because he was coming home. It was, he's a big smiley guy. And instead he came to New York that had just been battle scarred by this team that just, you know, fireballed out of existence. And they're like, right. Not that smile off your face, kid and get out and win. <laughs> get, right? We got, you got to win. And you got to win. And it, and it just never, it, it from jump, and then you have the fact that the team that we thought he was being brought in to lead was it's just turned out to be horrible, right? I mean, right. Horrible team. And as Mets fans, we knew that. Like, I, I didn't want to root for Vince Coleman. I didn't want to like Vince Coleman. I liked hating Vince Coleman. But now all of a sudden, that's the team that he's got built around. And this is not a, this is not a winning team. So when you look at Beltron, who had a terrible first year, his second year, he's got a much better team around him. Right. So right. it, it, it doesn't fall as hard on him. Pedro is there. Reporters. Right. Can Delgado. Right. Reyes. It's, it's not just him expecting to just carry him. the load. It's not, just but him. in a lot of ways, Beltron, uh, I feel like that strikeout that you mentioned. And the reason I bring it up because you mentioned it, that's his legacy. And he was so much better than that. Yeah. 
Yes. And let me tell you something. I know you haven't watched it, but I'll tell you that curveball, tough pitch. That's no, as much. That's as much Adam Wainwright as it is. And and that's typically Mets fans. You know, they're this is a tough fan base. And I said this with Cano and anybody who plays for the Yankees or comes here. You know, there's a harder grade for those guys. Yeah. I think it'll be interesting because you know, with this book and what you bring up. If Lindor and this marriage comes to fruition, and it may, it's, there's reports that they're starting to make progress. Um, this is this is his team now. Yeah, this is his team. Him and Conforto, if they sign, they're the two core offensive players. Everybody else will bounce off. They're going to be judged. This is Not right. Degrom. Right. Degrom will always get the out because you know yeah, he's, pitcher, he's, yeah, he did yeah. his eight innings, he did his seven innings, and you know what? They'll always. It's going to be them, and if and, and it'll be interesting to see how that relationship evolves. Now, here's something interesting as we wrap up here. Uh, in the spirit of your book, give me a Mets player that you that's not it's not Strawberry, it's not Seaver, it's not Doc, a guy that you connect with that you really like. Because I'll give you mine because we mentioned him earlier, but I'll give you mine, and I, I liked them as a kid. But someone less overt yeah. that when you bring him up, the fans will go, oh, I, I remember that guy, but he's kind of like. Uh, your guy or somebody that you connected with. What do you got for me? The the book is uh, the dedication in the book. The book is dedicated to my family, but it is also dedicated to Andy Chavez. Andy Chavez. So that would have been, Oh, that's so obvious in front of the whole thing. So obvious. I love Andy. There's a whole chapter about Andy. I got to speak to him for a while for the book. um, And that was one of the, just that I, my heart breaks about that catch. Because he deserved to have the best postseason catch of all time. The most crucial, critical, dramatic. He deserved it. He did it. All we had to do was finish off the game and win. And Did you see him jumping in the snow recently on uh, Instagram? I loved it. Uh, There you go. So he's still doing the catch, right? I actually texted him after that to say. Oh, that's great. Because it was basically right when I had gotten hardcover copies of the book. So it was basically an excuse to be like, oh, my gosh. I actually have a book. Can I send it to you right now? What's your address? I'm going to send it to you. And, you know, he is a huge defender of Beltron. He says, like you said about that curveball, which I have not and will not watch. Andy's view of that curveball, and remember, Andy was standing on second base. Nobody mm-hmm. in the world had a better view of that curveball than Andy. Right. He said it was unhittable. He's like, no, oh, he's unhittable. Yeah. He's like, nobody, yeah. nobody is hitting that pitch. He's like, sometimes as a hitter, you just get a pitch. You get beat. You get beat. And and his, and you know, he's looked like, look, I had an opportunity to come through right after I made that catch. I was up with the bases loaded in the bottom of the next inning. Yep. And And he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't, he struck out. Yeah. He couldn't hit a fly. Yeah. And it's a thing that, you know, like it's, it, it crushes me that that's how that game ended. And so the right. chapter for Andy was like my way to sort of write him into history, to give him what he deserved. I'll share this with you. I know I'm keeping you long, but there's a, I, 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 I'll share this with you. Cause I think Andy, I was at the last game at Shea stadium. I was sitting down the left field line in the orange seats, uh-huh. maybe like 15, 20 rows back. Here's how good a defensive player he was. I always, I can remember this play. I think the bait and I'm trying to remember maybe, uh, bases loaded. This is before they 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 blew. They, it was a tie game. If you remember, Beltran hit a home run to tie it that yep. day. And there was a line drive down the left field line. A pretty nice, well hit. Can't remember if it was a Dan Ugler or somebody. And Andy goes back, and as he's going back, he's lefty. He goes like this, kind of like like one of these going back, and just plucks the ball. And I remember watching it. And I know you, the listeners aren't seeing this, but turns his glove as a lefty the opposite way and goes. Boop, and I'm like, like you think about how good you got to be, and so casually just going. Oh. That's what I, one of the things I love. And he was a very good fielder. Very he's good. He's not fielder. a superhuman guy, right? No, nope. not a superhuman. He's not the physique. He's a relatively small guy. Then he's five eleven. He's never mm-hmm. didn't have the power to be a home run hitter. Holy crap, was he good at baseball? He was as as a pure baseball player. He was as good as anyone on that team. Just wasn't you know built the way yep. you need to. He didn't have the physical tools, but he. God, as a fielder, if you watch that play, and it is as perfect a crystalline snowflake of a defensive play you will ever right. see. And he deserves to go down in history for it. And if my book can do anything, it is to 
give him. His- well, this interview could do anything. It gives Eddie Chavez credit. I'll give you two names. One is probably not a really should get Mackie Sasser. I loved him as a kid. Mac the Hack. Mac was a guy. Love Mackie. Uh, Mackie was on the on before he got that ankle injury with uh, Presley slotting into him in 1990. Yep. He was on pace to be a really good catcher. Yep. Now, maybe by today's standards, the catch and throw, he wasn't a, a great receiver, but that staff didn't mind him. Everything went downhill and he, he's been on my program and he was on HBO Real Sport. And it's, it's an interesting psychological story. A chapter Sasser. in the book. There's a whole a chapter in the book. book so you can yeah. read about that in Devin's book. Um, and then the other guy is probably less over is John Olward. I've always liked John Olward. I like oh, Al Leiter's probably not a guy that counts Al Leiter. I like, it's funny. I'm a little, and I've been, you know, and you can see this, I got a bunch of memorabilia up. I've been redecorating my, my home man cave. My wife hates it. She doesn't like the spacing, <laughs> but I'm going, I said, you know, we got some stimulus money. Let me share the wealth with people who have, you know, could use it. eBay, small businesses, places like that. And uh, I'm putting up these 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 memories of Al Leiter, and I'm finding great action photos. You know, I got a picture of Al raising his hands after beating the Reds, and I'm saying, you know, that's what this fandom is all about. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's yeah, you only got a couple pennants, you only got a couple World Series, but there's nothing to be ashamed about. I could create my own man cave. I don't have 27 World Championships. I don't have the history of the Cardinals, um, but you have these moments. And let's face it. I, I can remember when Mike Piazza got traded where I was. I remember, you know, events because of sports. I had Larry Olmstead, who just wrote a book about fans on the show a couple of weeks ago, talking about how healthy it is to be a fan. Tying that into this, obviously, all this disappointment, and we'll wrap up on this. This hasn't made you a worse person. You're a successful writer. You're a happy guy. You know, you look healthy and happy. You know, you love Andy Chavez. You've met all these guys that, you know, you probably never thought about you would meet, you know, 15 years ago. So as we wrap up, um, you know, give the listeners an idea of what's next for you, what you got coming up. And obviously they could check out DevinGordon.net and, and your GQ article and all the other stuff you got going on. And obviously buy the book. Yeah, um, I'm not really sure. I'm hoping I'm going to get to write another book. I've got a bunch of ideas. Um, Is it Mets related or your books will be something no, else? No, this one, this one will be, um, there's a couple of sports ideas. There's a baseball idea. There's a football idea that I'm really excited about. Hopefully the book does well enough that I get a chance to do it. I'll be doing, you know, magazine articles, mm-hmm. um, you know, back to writing for the Atlantic and for ESPN and some of the other places that I've been writing for. Um, but mostly, hopefully I'll be talking about this book. I mean, you know, I think it's going to be an entertaining season and things are going to come up that uh, probably evoke things that may have happened earlier. Um, you know, I was going to say, you brought up John Olerud. Maybe I'll just leave with this. I assume you, do you know the great uh, Ricky Henderson story about John Olerud? Yeah, that he didn't know John Olerud. And, and, and they say it's never true that he actually knew John Olerud. But yeah. Glennon Rush was funny that Ricky used to call Glennon Rush. He was on the show a couple of weeks back and he used to call him lefty. He didn't know his name. He used to call him Lefty. And he took a cab with Patrick Mahomes, Pat Mahomes, it's really Pat Mahomes, Pat Mahomes and Glendon Rush and Ricky to the stadium. And he said, and Patrick, Pat Mahomes used to say, hey, Ricky, what's his name? And he points to Glendon Rush and Glendon Rush would say, uh, what's his name? And he say, Lefty. That's Lefty. That's Lefty. So he knew he threw left-handed, but he couldn't remember Glendon Rush's name. Ricky, Ricky Henderson is um, a delightful figure, one of my all-time favorites. Just I, I love characters, and Ricky Henderson was such a great character. And I know it didn't end very well for us with Ricky. Um, but he had a great you know, night without Ricky in 1999. The Mets do not make the playoffs. They do um, not beat the Reds. They don't make the playoffs. Exactly. And it was an incredible season for a 40-year-old guy. And Dennis Gilbert actually works with him, too. And, um, you know, Ricky used to work, refer to himself all the time in the third person. And apparently Dennis Gilbert says it really embarrassed him that he got known for that. So that he's sort of worked on trying to lick that habit. I think it was shtick and it was fun. That's interesting. It just goes to show you there's a human side to a lot of these guys. And I'm sure you saw Well, here's the deal I'll make with you. We'll keep in touch. And when the Mets make the World Series and win, you're the first guy I'm bringing on. I'm telling you. Because uh, I'll tell you a funny, you know, when I first saw the book come out, I was like, oh, why is somebody doing this? They're they're celebrating Mets' uh, loseriness. It's going to perpetuate the narrative. But I think he did a nice job in taking a difficult situation, making it fun, and tying it into Mets history. And I could see you want to embrace this. It's not meant to poke fun. Now there's going to be sports talk shows. They're going to use this the wrong way. You know that. And I know that's that. fine. That's fine. But I think, but I think that you meant to make this more of an, you know, Mets history and with the new era starting perfect timing to perfect timing. This is we're closing this chapter and the new Mets are going to be something different. And I'll say this, and this is truly it. When they do become a dynasty on Steve Cohen, what we'll say is, 
It couldn't have happened any other way. It makes Terry Pendleton worth it. It makes 2000 and losing to the Yankees worth it. It makes Andy Chavez worth it. It makes Beltron strikeout worth it. It couldn't happen any other way. So Devin, thank you so much. You've been generous. I, I know I kept you long, but this was no, I fun. Had a blast. I love talking to Mets fans. And let's, and let's, I, I, I follow you on Twitter now. Let's keep in touch and we'll do this again, my friend. All righty. Thank you so much. And that's Devin Gordon. And the book is so many ways to lose the amazing true story of the New York Mets, the best worst team in sports. Devin Gordon X on Twitter. Interesting stuff. It's funny how I wasn't sure how that would go. And, and again, like I did with uh, Mar- uh, recently in a couple of weeks ago, um, just a couple of guys talking baseball. And I think we'll do more of that. And I promise that it's not just authors. And I know we had uh, uh, Mark Gold on and, and, and we'll do more of that. And I think it's fun. It's a way to get through the season and everybody learn about their Mets experience. So, all right, let's take a quick break. We'll wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Hey, Mets fans, opening day's right around the corner. I don't want you to forget about our sponsor, Manscaped. If you haven't tried it yet, go to manscaped.com. They are the global leader in grooming. Below the waist grooming, but in grooming. Uh, Over 2 million men worldwide have joined this movement. I've told everybody, Mets fans, Talking Mets podcast Mets fans, you guys want to be part of it. If you want to be part of it, go to manscaped.com. Check it out. You get 20% off and free shipping with the code Talking Mets. No G. Very important. No G. You got the Perfect Package 3.0. Comes with one of the first-in-class grooming tools you'll ever have. You've got some great colognes. You've also got a nice travel kit. Just go check it out. Manscaped.com. 20% off free shipping. Code Talking Mets. No G. Courtesy of me. I want to see you well-groomed for the 2021 baseball season. And if you're not interested, just pass by this. And enjoy the rest of the show. All right. Manscaped.com. 20% off free shipping. Code Talking Mets. And let's get back to Mets baseball. All right. We're back. Final thoughts. Uh, I thought that was a great segment. Great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Something just to gear up. I mean, we're going to start getting into the nuts and bolts of the season games and, and and the Mets look good and I think this is going to be a fun season and certainly a season that we all expect the Mets to be in a playoff run uh, and, and make the playoffs I mean what that looks like I think remains to be seen but a couple of things I took away as I'm talking to Devin one uh, I, I was always wondering and, and I, you'd be curious if you guys want to send me feedback either on Twitter at Mike Silva Media or at Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com remember no G I always have to say that because people still emailing me with a G. Um, do you ever watch an old game that you know what the outcome is, but you're watching it and you're hoping for a different result? It was funny. I was there's a book out and I cannot remember who wrote it, but it's written in the '80s. It's about Game Six of the 1986 uh, National League Championship Series. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to find it. The best game ever played, ever played. I don't think it's Jack Lang that wrote it, but it's a longtime sports writer. Uh, anyway, I'll find it some other time. But anyway, as I was looking for that book, which some people are selling for like 80 bucks used paperback on on Amazon. Think about that. It's not something you can find on Kindle. Uh, the Astros fans in the comments are talking about how they they watch that game and they're hoping for a different outcome. That's the Astros fans of Game 6 of the NLCS. And I think about uh, Game 1 of the World Series. I remember last year during the pandemic when Yes had it on and I'm watching. And and what's funny is everybody talks about that ninth inning with the walk to Paul O'Neill uh, or Timo Perez not running things out. But if you watch the top of the ninth, Mike Bordick almost hit a home run. that just missed going out to right field. And the Mets didn't execute and get the insurance room. But think if that ball goes in that little short porch and right the opposite way, Mike Bordick hits a two-run homer. The Mets probably put that sucker away. I think about the Carlos Beltran at bat. Watching that ninth inning, I've seen that. And hoping that Reyes's line drive doesn't get caught by Edmonds or that Beltran swings at that first fastball. You think about that. You think about, obviously, some of the moves that Terry Collins could have made differently in the 2015 World Series. Sosha in 88, watching that at bat. You know, as a Knicks fan, so many uh, things I could look at, whether it be the John Starks three-pointer in 94, the Charles Smith play in 93. So many things you could look at. 
in those seasons where, you know, if something went different, maybe the outcome is different. So it's funny that as we're talking about it, we're talking about how he has not seen game seven of the 2006 NLCS. And I've watched that about a couple of times. And you're right. The juices come back. And it's funny how as a fan that that happens. And I'm curious if you guys have moments like that, whether it's the Terry Pendleton home run or maybe Piazza's home run, not go, you know, ball that dies somehow in center field in uh, the Subway Series for the final out. A ball that to this day, I don't know how it didn't go out. So uh, things like that. The second thing I was thinking of, and I was looking this up during the break, and you're all going to kill me on this. This will probably get me the most negative fanfare. But... Bobby Bonilla is such a negative name in Mets history. You could even look up Bobby Bonilla memorabilia, and there's so few of it with him in a Mets uniform. And if there is, it's a very generic situation. And everybody's always going to remember him, at least until he's, you know, what whatever the last payment is, sometimes sometime in 2032 or whatever it is. So you, you've got well over another decade of Bobby Bonilla Day, even though there's other teams that are paying Bruce Suter and... Brett Saberhagen and guys like that. I mean, if you went to some of these payrolls, I think, you know, spot track, I I think you'll see other names that come up from the 80s that are getting annuities, so to speak, from teams. But if you look at Bobby Bonilla's career as a Met, which is five seasons total, and the only team he played more for were the Pirates. Those were his golden years. Bobby Bonilla was a pretty damn good hitter. Here's a guy that hit 270 as a Met, he had 95 home runs in his career. Uh, he had an 850 OPS, at 128 OPS plus. He played multiple positions. He played third. He played right. He played first. He played left. And if he was on a good team and wasn't expected to be the man, I, I don't know if he would be viewed the same. Now, what happened in 99 with him coming back and at a time where he still wanted to be a full-time player and and all the stuff with the cards in the dugout and all that other stuff. It's a whole different situation. And he was brought back, and, and probably the Mets, they were trying to get rid of Rojas's contract. Mel Rojas was a disaster with the Mets. They probably should have thought twice about bringing Bobby into that situation. And look, Benny Agbayani took his, his job. That happens. Young player, played well, was a big offensive piece of that team. You know, maybe Benny wasn't a star, but in that lineup, he did just enough to to take his job. Probably what you expected Bonilla to do. But when you look at him during his first tenure, and he was traded to the Orioles as a big transaction. I mean, the Orioles gave up Alex Ochoa, a top prospect in that deal for Bobby Bonilla. Mets were trying to get Benitez in that deal. If you go back, Benitez was a big prospect. Mets were trying to get Benitez as well. I mean, Alex Ochoa was a top prospect, 5 tool player, a guy that Mets thought would be part of the solution. We know what happened. Maybe that ties into the whole theme of so many ways to lose. But when you look at Bonilla in context, he is every bit the offensive player during his Mets career, just Mets career, that Michael Conforto is. And Michael Conforto is about to get a big contract. He's a better hitter than Howard Johnson, if you want to look at some of the total numbers. Kevin McReynolds, Rusty Staub, who everybody likes. Edgardo Alfonso, who is beloved. Daniel Murphy. You know, he's a shade under Carlos Beltran. Not that much different than David Wright, by the way, guys. Now, you have your elite all-time hitters in Mets history. Strawberry's number one if you want to just do OPS+. plus. Piazza, number two. You could argue either way. But think about that. So as much as we dislike, and I'm trying to reframe Bonilla, maybe it was wrong place, wrong time in Mets history. Take a younger Bobby Bonilla who was given that big contract, and in a lot of ways he earned that contract. Now, he was the highest paid player in baseball. He was asked to replace Strawberry. Unfair in both fronts. He was in the right place at the right time. He and Danny Tartable that offseason. Both got big contracts. One went to the Mets, one went to the Yankees. So it's funny that Bobby Bonilla is known as this awful signing and this awful guy. And look, wasn't probably a good fit for New York. Not the first guy. Won't be the last. But don't criticize the production, at least for the first tenure. Forget 99. I'll throw it. Remember, those numbers include 1999, a disastrous tenure, where he was essentially, after the first month of the season, regulated to, you know, the 25th man on the roster. 
I mean, Bobby Valentine probably could have made him the 80th man on the roster if, if he could. Maybe that was a bad mix, him and Bobby V. Who knows? So way better as a Met offensively than Gary Carter. Gary's beloved, but Gary's overall was slightly above league average. I mean, Gary had a great 85, great 86, started to decline in 87, and fell off the cliff. Catchers do that. That happens. So I was just thinking about that as we talked about Bobby Bow, and I thought it was an interesting story and how Devin was able to get Dennis Gilbert and all that other stuff. So anyway, that's my thoughts about this segment. I hope you enjoy it. Think about those two things. I'd like to hear from you guys. My thoughts on Bobby Bow. And also what I had to say about you going back and looking at some old games, really watching them, and then your, your juices get going. And then um, you're hoping for a different outcome. Of course, we know in reality that tape's not going to change. You're not going to magically have some kind of butterfly effect here and go and all of a sudden change uh, the course of Mets history with whatever we're watching at that point. All right, I want to thank Devin Gordon for joining me today. You can check out his book, So Many Ways to Lose. Also, check out Devin Gordon X at Devin Gordon X on Twitter. You can check me out all the time at Mike Silva Media on Twitter. Of course, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com, no G. And you can get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We will have a season preview show coming up midweek. Sit tight, stay tuned. Till then, be well, everybody. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.